Welcome to The Author Show, where we feature new authors and books, from fiction to self-help and everything in between. You'll find it all at theauthorshow.com. That's theauthorshow.com. And now let the show begin. Welcome to The Author Show. I am Luc Hansonnet, your host. Before I bring in today's guest, a quick reminder that selected interviews on The Author Show are available on our iPhone app, which can be downloaded in the App Store, as well as on TV, on the Roku channel, and on Amazon Fire TV. Our app name on all platforms is simply The Author's Show. My guest today comes from the small mining town of Biwabic, Minnesota. He's had two careers, one as a lawyer and one as a traveler, but he is definitely not your typical traveler. From early on, he has shown a knack for unusual, offbeat adventures. This eventually led him to become the author of his first novel, The Other World's Offbeat Adventures of a Curious Traveler. His name is Tom Madsen. You will find out more about Tom on his webpage, tomsglobe.com. So T-O-M-S-Globe-G-L-O-B-E dot com. Tom, welcome to The Author's Show. Thank you very much, Luke. I'm glad to be here. So tell us about, uh, you don't want to give everything away, but tell us a, a bit about your book. Well, I've been traveling intensely uh, for 15 years now, which followed up on some of uh, my earlier travels, including an around-the-world trip when I was right out of college. And I sent emails home about my adventures, and people really liked them, and they were encouraging me to write more each time I travel. And so I started to write about characters I met on different continents, other experiences I've had, and I decided I could be a little more creative, too, since they liked what I was doing. So really, it is a lot of unusual and even offbeat adventures, and it's meeting strangers and making friends around the world and also uh, here in the United States. Awesome. So when you put the book together... Who specifically do you think would be your target audience or who specifically should be buying and reading your book? I'll answer this question based on the feedback I got from a big variety of people who have read individual stories or the whole book more recently. And that is people who fall in one category who do a lot of world traveling themselves or in another category, those who like to read about adventures who might seldom have the opportunity to travel very far. It is older people, and I've discovered younger people too. It's a big variety of people who love to read about people around the world and what I call the other worlds. So it's, a, it's really an adventure book based on real personal experiences I've had. And how did you decide on the title for your book? That must have been an interesting challenge. Well, it took us a while to decide on a title. It took us a lot longer than just writing the book. But my editor, Caroline Lambert, when she was going through a story in Cuba, where I go almost every single year, I had mentioned in the story that I got a email from a friend who lives a few miles away from me near Biwabic, Minnesota, and he said, Tom, why do you love the other world's soul? <laughs> and that made me think, and I 
answered him uh, in detail, and one of it was just the surprises around every corner, the delight, the learning, the engagement with people. So I answered him, why do I love the other worlds so? And Caroline, the editor, said that would be a good title for this book, and it's about meeting strangers making friends, which is actually the title of a book that will be published in 2021, which will be my second book, Meeting Strangers, Making Friends. I think you've already answered my next question, but is there anything else that makes your book different or stand out from other travel books already available? I believe it is unique in that it is the experience that I personally have had based on a curiosity in asking strangers questions and engaging with them and listening to what they say. And they love to talk about their lives and what they do, their jobs, even their customs. People love to engage all around the world. And since I speak Spanish, I can communicate in Spanish with many people, but other people in many countries speak enough English so that we can engage. That's why I love traveling, meeting people and the wonderful, delightful surprises. Again, a perfect segue to my next question. In your book, you describe a fascinating Cuban character with a very interesting background, and you end up eventually interviewing him. Can you please tell us how you end up meeting and interviewing Juan Castillo? Juan Castillo lives in a very small mountain village in the Sierra Maestra Mountains of Cuba. Uh, he grew up there. He lived with his grandfather, Lucas, in the 1950s when he was just a boy. This was a very historic part of Cuba because in the revolution in the late 1950s against the dictator Batista, Fidel Castro landed in a boat from Cuba along with Che Guevara and a band of revolutionaries. And they started to proceed through these mountains and win over the campesinos to their cause of revolution. And I heard that Juan, who lived in that little village, was an eyewitness to some extent. So I went over to his house one night and uh, sat down at the kitchen table on a dirt floor and learned more about his life. And he actually met Fidel Castro as a boy and met Che Guevara, the Argentinian doctor, the rebel, when he was eight years old. And I asked him, Juan, has anybody ever interviewed you? And he said, no one had. I said, we will do that sometime. But a couple of years went by, and I finally decided I need a good little camera. So I got a an iPhone that had a good camera. It was a little bit outdated. And then the last time I was there, which was not this year because of COVID, but uh, last in 2019, Juan and his son Miguel and I sat down day after day, late in the day, because Juan at 70 years old still is a hardworking farmer. And now I've converted the interview into uh, videos, and I'm going to be posting them uh, on my website and even uh, making them available. But they in Cuba are waiting for me for the interviews because they'll have a TV that can play them. Wow. And I asked Juan, did Fidel Castro ever stay overnight at your house? And he told me, 
One day, his grandparents fixed up the nicest bedroom in an old house, and Fidel stayed overnight, and he stayed there other times, too. It was very dangerous in that village, Santo Domingo, because Batista's air force circled the village and bombed them whenever they saw people moving, and Batista sent thousands of soldiers in into the mountains to search, and actually... Juan's grandfather, Lucas, who was helping Fidel Castro, he was discovered by Batista's soldiers and tortured with a bayonet and oh, killed. Yeah. And Juan, uh, as an eight-year-old, saw the body. I visit them every year up in the mountains. That that must have been a fascinating interview, and I can't wait to see that I, that, that you put them on your website for sure. Now, to take another tack entirely, a different country, surprisingly, in 1969, you were not at the Woodstock Festival. Instead, you spent the summer in New York City. What led to that decision, and what was that like? Well, I was going to law school in, at the University of Minnesota, and I got a job for the summer at 52 Wall Street for a big law firm to be a summer clerk for a couple of months. And the museums just totally fascinated me and the neighborhoods and the tremendous amount of, of life in New York City. I was, my mind, I was just blown away. But I wanted to go to Woodstock. I'd seen a little tiny poster for Woodstock posted and I thought, well, that would be interesting. But I had to go back to the university a little early to be a, an article editor on the law review. So I missed what turned out to be uh, bigger than just a little festival. Right. One night, I went to some music venues, and I was in a basement, a dark basement folk music venue, and I had a table mate since it was small and crowded. And after the singer who sang Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road, <laughs> his set ended, and my table mate said, you know who's sitting at that table over there? I said, no. He said, that's Bob Dylan. Well, up on the street, my table mate and I, we saw that Bob Dylan and a couple of his friends went into the bar next door. So uh, we figured that would be a very good place to go. So we went and sat at the bar. And when Bob Dylan came up to order some drinks a few feet from me, I said something to him that only one person in New York City who's named Bob out of, I think, uh, 91,000 would understand. I said, hey, Bob, I'm from Biwabic. And he knew very well by Wabick because he lived and grew up in a neighboring Iron Range town, Hibbing, Minnesota. Oh, wow. So I uh, said, you should come back up there sometime. And he, we, that, our conversation was very brief. He was kind of like, I think he had been in a motorcycle accident and he wasn't seen around very much at that time. So that's Bob Dylan from the Iron Range of Minnesota. Wow. So you miss Woodstock, but you got to meet Bob Dylan. So from your hometown or your home area anyway. So that's a pretty good trade off. It sure was. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. So let's switch countries again. I understand that you spent a Saturday night in Tijuana, Mexico in a most unusual place. Could you tell us about that? Well, every time I ended up uh, around Southern California, I enjoyed going south of the border to Tijuana. It was a wonderful town with very local neighborhoods and bars. And 
I was standing outside of a corner store with a can of beer in my hand, like some other guys were, but the cops came by and I threw my can of beer out. And anyway, one thing led to another and within a few minutes I found myself in the back of their cop car on the way to the police station and then they hauled me toward the infamous Tijuana jail. I think it was oh, wow. a teenage boy who worked in the police department. He was driving this great big U.S. car filled with us prisoners slowly through the streets of Tijuana, windows down. He was proud. All the girls on the street looked at him and he smiled and waved to all the girls. We didn't smile. We weren't too happy. Those are people who are going to be inmates. But I ended up in a cell with three young U.S. Navy sailors. They were supposed to be back on their boat in San Diego that night, their nuclear submarine, and they weren't going to get there. And I wasn't going to get out of jail either. It was a Saturday night and there was live music. The other prisoners and other cell blocks were belting out Mexican songs. And there could have been a drug kingpin or two in one of the other cell blocks because that's how notorious Tijuana jail was. I did get out in the morning. I felt sorry for the three Navy boys who I left behind. And I wonder whatever happened to their careers. And I still don't know yet today. Wow. And you are also, you know, you talk about California. You were in San Francisco during the Summer of Love. Can you tell us about that? And of course, like the song goes, did you wear any flowers in your hair? Well, my Iron Range friend, Ron Schaefer, and I, we were out in California for a couple of weeks, and we decided to go to Haight-Ashbury, the hippie area of the Summer of Love. It was filled with hundreds of people. Everyone was beautiful. And a woman in a big fur coat on this summer day, she was smiling and friendly, and she offered us a smoke of something that was really unusual at that time in most places. And my buddy Ron had never had any experience, and he immediately said no to that offer, and I just stayed silent. I might have had a different answer, but it was uh, a beautiful summer day, and I we didn't wear flowers in our hair, but that song, if you come to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair, that was very popular. Yeah. It's still still a beautiful song that resonates today. When you left the Summer of Love in San Francisco, where did you go after that? Just north of San Francisco and Santa Rosa, I was visiting my Uncle Buzz and Aunt Jeanette and Cousin Joni, and I had always wanted to hop a freight train ever since reading a Carl Sandburg poem in high school literature. And so my Uncle Buzz gave me a ride to a freight station a few miles away, and he gave me an old sweater from the 1930s, I think, and some newspapers. He said, it'll get cold at night and layer the newspapers over you. So I climbed a, a boxcar, and I thought, wow, this is going to be a cool trip. Nobody saw me, and so I was laying up on top of the boxcar, and soon there was a voice from down below, hey, mate, hey, mate, and I I did, refused to look over. Finally, he said, hey, mate. And I finally peeked over to the ground, looked down, and he said, come on down here. So I went down. He was like the brakeman. 
his station was in the caboose. He said, come on in the caboose. Uh, if we go past the station, lay down on this bench. He brought me a candy bar from a, one of the stops vending machines. And that night I uh, was in a boxcar. I had a bottle of glass bottle of Coca-Cola. My brother had said, if you go and hop in a freight, take water or take, take drink, you'll get thirsty. He said, also, you'll uh, be in danger. He said, don't fall asleep among strangers. Uh, but that night, it was all dark in the boxcar. There was another bum in the boxcar with me, and I opened up that bottle of Coke on the metal grating on the wall of the boxcar, and that bottle cap bounced through the darkness down at the other end uh, where the other bum was, and I thought I'd better share some Coke with him. So I asked him if he wanted some. And in his voice, which he was African-American from the deep south uh, by the sound of his voice, and all he said that I could make out was when I asked him if he wanted some Coke, he said, oh, no, I, I thought you were throwing rocks at me. <laughs> so, uh, But we both slept well. That cleared the air. We slept well. And the next morning, many hours away, uh, I woke up. And he was gone. And I continued on the boxcar and the freight trains for a, another day to Southern California. That's fantastic. And I have so many more questions for you, but we're quickly running out of time. Would you be able to share us for us a quick excerpt from your book? Yes. The setup here is that I'm in an ethnic village in the middle of China, and students from a small city down below had led me to their village on a two-hour hike, and then it got too late for me to go back down to where I had a room. So they found a room in a house for me to stay in. Now, here's a little excerpt from that story. We were at, and we were at a teacher's house who had given us snacks and a toast. Here's what I write. Sometime after the toast, the students show me back to the accommodation. Like most homes in the ethnic mountain villages, the house is large and has three floors. One floor, often the ground floor, is the barn. In this home, though, the kitchen and the living area are on the ground floor. A hill on the side of the house gives the animals access to the second floor barn. The toilet is an old wood bucket sitting on the barn floor next to the pig pen. My room is on the third floor. In the middle of the night, I want to visit the old wood bucket one floor down. It is dark, and I've forgotten where the light switch is. I doubt whether I can find the bucket, assuming I don't tumble down the scarily steep stairs first. To my surprise, however, I descend safely and make it quickly to the bucket, but not without bumping into the wooden pig pen and making the pig oink. <laughs> All I need to do next is to spin 180 degrees and walk back to the stairs. They are nowhere to be found, though. The barn is pitch black. I feel my way around, but all I touch, sometimes noisily, are farm implements. I have to be quiet, wondering whether my making the pig oink oink will wake up the whole house. I think I might spend hours in the barn with the pig, for I don't want to yell for help, nor could I. 
how do you yell out in Chinese? I'm lost in the middle of the barn with the pig. <laughs> Luckily, on my third fumbling journey around the perimeter, I bumped into the steps. My hard bed above couldn't feel better. That's fantastic. I can't wait to read your book. Uh, obviously, you want to sell your book, but other than selling your book, what, what do you hope that it will accomplish? I hope that the uh, people who read it, uh, and I've learned that many who have, have felt that they are along with me on the journey, including Jack Canfield said the same, and that they feel they're meeting the people that I have met and getting to know them in many different countries around the world. And I think that people will realize that all of us around the world have so much more in common and are so much more alike than not alike, and that there is really a wonderful humanity that just circles the earth all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful observation, I think, and discovery for all of us, whether we travel far or whether we visit with strangers in our own towns, that we are all in this together and we have such a commonality. That's fantastic. Where can readers find you and your book? I have a, a website, tomsglobe.com, as you mentioned, and I have a lot of photos and even links to some YouTube videos of my travels on there. And it has a link to amazon.com to buy the book on Amazon and also Barnes & Noble online. And if you happen to live right near the Minnesota Iron Range, it also lists on the website a number of businesses and coffee houses where you could pick up a copy of the book. Excellent. Tom, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I'm sure we could have, and I know we will continue to talk for, for a long time after the interview. When you release your next book, will you come back again and share it with your our audience? I'd love to come back for a, a, a reading from and a talk with you, Luke, on the book called Meeting Strangers, Making Friends. Thank you so much. So that is your second book that's coming out yes. soon, right? Excellent. So uh, on Amazon, there are many great reviews for Tom's book. Uh, my favorite is I Am a Native Mayan from the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Tom's book helped me relate to other Native people around the world. Tom, I thought that was quite the compliment. Also, Jack Canfield, the New York Times bestseller, author, and co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, says of the other worlds, Tom Matson is an amazing person, a world traveler. He has fascinated me with his writing about how he goes around the world meeting people by accident and then becoming friends with them and writing stories that are just phenomenal. Writing in a way that is so captivating. I loved the book. You can find out more about Jack Canfield's review on Tom's website, tomsglobe.com. The Other World's Offbeat Adventures of a Curious Traveler is the title of the book by Tom Matson. Go out there, get it today, and please share this interview with your friends so that they too will have an opportunity to discover our guest and his work. Remember, the author's show may be accessed at any time at theauthorsshow.com. Plus, selected interviews can also be found on major platforms like Amazon Fire TV, the Roku Channel, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, and many more. 
And whether you're an author who would like to be featured or a reader in search of new books to read, theauthorsshow.com is a great place to start. I am Luc Hansenet. Thank you for listening. Until next time, with another author and another great book. Thanks for listening to The Author Show. Find out more about authors and their work at theauthorsshow.com. Theauthorsshow.com. Tune in next time to another great author on The Author Show.